sang the last song, we just wanted to hear God's words in our lives. So what we've been doing over the past couple weeks is using the story of Cousin Jerry. We've been following Cousin Jerry and his adventures to find out more about Jesus as Jesus says more about who he is through the different I am statements. So uh, last we left our cousin Jerry in his adventures. Uh, he was on the Camel Express. Here's Mr. Jerry and it's a Camel Express. And he was off to see Cousin Aaron and Cousin David to tell him all that he learned about Jesus for the past couple of weeks. And of course, we learned that Jesus is the bread of life. And we also remember what's next one? Jesus is the light of the world. He shows us the way. And Jesus is the gate and the good shepherd to protect us. And last week, we learned that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He will be our Jesus now and tomorrow forever with us. So, Cousin Jerry was going on his Camel Express, then all of a sudden, wow, there was a big crowd in front of him and the camel came to a stop. Whoa! And the camel was surprised. And he looked ahead and the crowd, they were all carrying little palm leaves. Wow! Remember in uh, Sunday school, we used to make those palms with the hands. Just carrying palm leaves. And they were all shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And Cousin Jerry looked and said, oh my, oh my, what is going on? And he looked and he looked and he saw in front of the crowd. It was Jesus on a tiny donkey, and all the crowd was amazed and surprised, and shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Cousin Jerry, he saw that and was wondering, what are the people so excited about? Who do they see in Jesus? And he realized more and more, he needs to start thinking about what this all means. He needs to decide what is the truth that Jesus is saying. Who is Jesus? Where is he leading us? And where will I go? All these thoughts were in Jerry's head. So that's a big coincidence because a few days later, Jesus was having dinner with the disciples. And the disciples had the same question. So during dinner, Peter, he's one of the disciples, 
he asked Jesus, Jesus, where are you going? And this is what he said. Jesus said he is preparing a room for them in the Father's house. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Then another disciple, Thomas, he said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Then Jesus said to Thomas, I am the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him, you have seen him. So Jesus said, He will be preparing a house for us to go and be with God. Okay, so Jesus was using the story of a house because it's to remind us that we will be with God in a relationship, in a family. God will be our father and we will be his children. Just like we today live with our parents and we're happy together. So it will not be God who's out there somewhere, but God with us in a family, in a house. And God and Jesus is reminding us that he is the way to be with God. Right? It's my little, little road. So Jesus is saying not only is he showing us the way, you know, go left or go right, but he's actually the road itself leading us to God. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So just like Jesus spoke to the disciples, and Jesus also speaking to our friend, cousin Jerry. He's also speaking to us. He's asking us, do we believe the truth that Jesus is saying? Do we believe who he is? Are we willing to follow him on the road to God? So these are all the questions that are in front of us. And we're gonna have to decide to think about them. Because let us all remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And next week, we're going to catch up with Cousin Jerry. And the last week of the series, we're going to find out what happens. So I hope you can all be with me next week to discover the end of the story. So in preparation, let's all pray together. So open them. Shut them. Oh, God, you prepare a room for us. Open them, shut them, through Jesus, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Open them, shut them, give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them, clean the lap, and let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that you show us more and more of who you are, and you lead us to God. And we pray that you have ears to listen to you, and we may follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, children, please look at your activity sheets. You can start working on them as the rest of the service goes. And don't forget to join us afterwards when you're done for announcements and the ending of service. Thank you. That's it.
Our scripture reading for today is Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was a word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Barak in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Um, sorry, we have to go back to um, a full Zoom service this week, but hopefully we'll be back to in-person services, and I look forward to seeing you all uh, once again. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you that you have made this day for us to gather, uh, even virtually, and to seek your face together. Help us now, God, in the hearing of your word, to hear your word for us this day. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw God and Jeremiah respond to a people undergoing a self-inflicted disaster and suffering, not with judgment, but with empathy and prolonged sorrow. It's a place where many of us are at or have been at in recent months. It's not where any of us want to be, but it's where sometimes we have to be with those whom we love. Grief is an appropriate and sometimes the only possible response to tragedy. But as you just heard, Jeremiah shows us another possible faithful response to tragedy. Our reading today takes place during the last siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. I imagine that it was not unlike some of the images and videos we saw this week of what was happening in Afghanistan. Elsewhere in the scriptures, of the fall of Jerusalem, we are told of buildings being burned and destroyed, of state treasures being plundered, of general pillaging and suffering, 
of government officials being executed, of bodies littering the narrow streets, of children begging among the ruins, and some even resorting to cannibalism. It was a time of utter chaos and terror. Jerusalem will fall, and the people will be taken into captivity, just as Jeremiah had been prophesying for decades. In fact, Jeremiah is in prison during this moment for preaching a message of judgment and doom. For example, these words from chapter 4 are typical. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. Now, it's all coming true. The nation is about to go into exile. Jeremiah knows better than anyone else that all the land is going to be under Babylonian control for a long time. In fact, earlier in chapter 29, he had told the exiles to get settled down, to build houses and plant gardens, and to pray for the welfare of Babylon, because it's going to be a while. And so under these circumstances, the last thing you would think Jeremiah would want to do is buy land anywhere near Jerusalem. I mean, it would be a time to liquidate your assets and to get cold cash or cold shekels for your impending exile. Why waste precious money to buy a field that is in ruins and that you'll likely never see, let alone cultivate and profit from? We're not told why his cousin Hamamel wants to sell the field, but it seems to me that he's shrewdly using a loophole in the law to take advantage of his cousin. I know that for us, Buying and selling real estate is largely an economic decision and a means of building personal wealth. However, that is not what it's about in the scriptures. The acquisition of land was not driven by capitalist impulses, but rather governed by theological conviction. The people of Israel believed that God had given the land to them as a promise beginning with Abraham. They believed that the land belonged ultimately to God. In Leviticus 25, for example, God says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are so strangers and sojourners with me. The whole world belongs to God. It is not theirs, it is not ours. We are simply stewards of God's creation. That is, in many ways, a sharp rebuke to our modern sensibilities and our system of unfettered capitalism predicated on a zero-sum game, where you are encouraged to accumulate as much as you can for yourself. Get as much as you can for yourself is not God's vision for community. The land is not one more possession to be bought and sold for maximal profit. It is an emblem of God's grace. This is why the prophets regularly preached against the accumulation of land as a violation 
of the inheritance laws against the spirit of God's word and proclaimed that such greedy actions led to the kind of flourishing of injustice that dishonored the name of God. Everyone was supposed to have land as an inheritance from God. And God even put in a couple of mechanisms in place so that every family would always have land. First, there is the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, every piece of land had to be returned. It reverted back to the original owner or to their descendants. If someone had been forced to sell their land for whatever reason, it had to be returned in the year of Jubilee. In theory, this meant that no one could accumulate more land than their neighbors. And it would ensure that poverty would not be passed down from one generation to the next. Every generation would have a fresh start, their own piece of land to build their home and to farm. Now, we have no evidence that the ancient Israelites actually ever practiced this, but it describes God's vision for his people. The other mechanism that we do know that was practiced was the right of redemption. Again, in Leviticus 25, God says, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. When someone had to sell their land, their nearest relative had the right and the duty to purchase that land to keep the land within the family. You might recall that this is what happened in the story of Ruth and Boaz. So Jeremiah's cousin, not to be confused with cousin Jerry, may be using the dire circumstances of war and the law of redemption to force his relative Jeremiah to buy the field at Anatoth from him. Anatoth, by the way, is Jeremiah's hometown. It's also, incidentally, where people try to kill him because of his preaching. So this is just a terrible decision in every possible way for Jeremiah to buy a field at this time and in this place. It's something that every one of his friends and every financial planner would advise against. But Jeremiah does it anyway. Like many things in the life of a prophet, this is not just an ordinary purchase of a field. It's a lived out parable. And so, we are, and so we are given this very public and precise details about the transactions. If you were to buy a field today, it would probably involve a realtor, loans from a bank, a lawyer, and lots of paperwork. In Jeremiah's day, they had witnesses. They had to make two copies, one open and another sealed for safekeeping. And I'm not going to say anything more about this, but I do want to point out the fact that Jeremiah just happened to pay 17 shekels for the field. 17. Jeremiah concludes the transaction with these words. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. That's the hope and the promise that God has given to Jeremiah, that even though life looks really hopeless right now, 
houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. There will be life and community once again in this place. Jeremiah lived in incredibly chaotic times. Not only was his nation about to be plundered, defeated, and carted off into exile, but he himself is in jail, both personally and nationally. It's as bad a situation as can be. It would have been easy to get depressed and to give up and to assume that God had abandoned him and his people. Yet under such challenging circumstances, Jeremiah buys a field. He did not do this out of a naive belief that all would be well, but rather out of a hope that was grounded in the faithfulness of God that the coming calamity would not be the final chapter in the story of God's people. I think this is a word for us today. When life is chaotic, we can do what Jeremiah did. I don't mean buy up real estate. I mean that we can continue to be obedient to God's word. Now, what's really important is to understand here that obedience requires some initiative and application on our part. Notice that God does not tell Jeremiah to buy the field. God only tells him that his cousin will come and make an offer for the land. That's it. The decision to buy the field was made by Jeremiah. In fact, when God first told him that his cousin would make this offer, Jeremiah wasn't quite sure. We don't have to assume that just because Jeremiah was a prophet, that he somehow had enormous and unwavering faith, and that it was always clear and obvious what he had to do. In verse 6, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, your cousin will come to you and say, Buy my field. He receives this word, but it must have been incredible to him. He wasn't sure what that meant. But then he writes, Then Hamamel, my cousin, came to me in accordance with the word of the Lord. And it was then that I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. He was reassured in his faith by the fulfillment of that word. We see that Jeremiah heard God's word, but God's word didn't tell him to buy the field. That's something he had to figure out for himself. You see, I think most of the time, God's word doesn't tell us precisely what to do in every situation. Maybe when we're younger, we want and we need step-by-step -step instructions for every decision that we need to make. But as we grow in faith, God gives us the freedom and the creativity to do what is right, what is just and compassionate and loving based on our knowledge of God and God's will. It's like my wife when she occasionally prophesizes every Wednesday night. She will say, the garbage trucks are coming tomorrow. 
That's all she has to say. She could have added, so please collect all the garbage in the house, including the bathrooms, and take it out to the front of the lawn tonight because the trucks will come pretty early in the morning and you might oversleep like you did last week and you will miss the truck and we will be stuck with the garbage in the backyard with no place to put them and I'm going to be angry. She doesn't do all of that. Instead, I'm given a word and she trusts me enough to do what needs to be done. Or maybe as parents, it's like when you tell your kids when they go off to school or when they go to hang out with friends, you'd probably tell them study hard, but you would also add, I hope, go have fun. Go have fun. We don't give detailed instructions about every possible and potential danger that they might face. Instead, as parents, you trust them, that you raise them well, that you instilled in them good values, and that they will choose wisely and make good decisions. I think likewise, God simply tells Jeremiah, your cousin is going to come and he's going to want to sell you a field and God will trust Jeremiah to act faithfully. Imagine if I were to tell you today that the word of the Lord to you is that someone this week is going to ask you for help cleaning up around the house. So imagine later this week, someone comes to you and asks you for help to clean up. Your first response might be, wow, how cool is my pastor? He knew that this was going to happen. But then what? What would you do? Would you praise God that the word came true and then go back to whatever you were doing? I hope not. I would hope that you would take the next step and help clean up. God allows Jeremiah to act on his knowledge of God's word. And Jeremiah not only heard God's word for him that day, but he knew that word in the context of the whole counsel of God all of God's scriptures. So even though God didn't tell him to buy the field, Jeremiah knew about the right of redemption or perhaps the responsibility of redemption, and he chose to buy it in obedience to God's larger word. It was a financially disastrous move, but it was the faithful one in accordance with God's word. In chaotic times, even at his own loss, he chose to be obedient to God's word to him and God's word to his people. I think it's the same today. What is God's word to you today? What word is God calling you to obey? What might be your equivalent of responding with, I bought the field in Anatoth? Like Jeremiah, I think we need to hear a particular word today in light of God's whole word, the entirety of scriptures. And as you know, the scriptures call us to many, many things. But let's consider the two most obvious commandments. First, God's word repeatedly calls us to love our neighbors, right? 
That's pretty clear throughout the scriptures. It's an unmistakable command. Maybe that is God's word to you this morning. Love your neighbors. That's the word that Jeremiah heard. What might that mean for you? Some of you might remember when we first started to support a group of kids at the school, at the Bethany School in Kenya. At the time, it was just getting started with a group of kindergartners. Investing in the education of a few kids in the poorest county in all of Kenya seemed like buying the field in Anatoth. But as we have come to hear from them every year now, those kids are now the very best students in the entire country. It will take some more time, but some of those kids are likely to become adult leaders of their nation and perhaps of the world. I hope I'm around to see the differences they will make. But even if I don't, I have the hope that their vision for the world will have been shaped by their faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we as a church in some small way help to make that possible. More recently, I've been thinking about our missionary partner, Pastor Lee, and about how he bought a field in Lamu to begin a new ministry among the most difficult to reach people in the world. Depending on your perspective, it's as foolish or as faithful and hopeful as buying the field in Anatoth. Maybe you hear God's word today and you hear from me that there's been a terrible earthquake in Haiti. I can inform you that over 2,000 people have died, that more than 12,000 are injured, that tens of thousands are homeless, that hundreds are still missing, and that hospitals and clinics are either destroyed or overwhelmed. I was reminded that in 1989, the Bay Area in California suffered a similar magnitude earthquake, but in that earthquake, less than 70 people died a far fewer number than in Haiti, because the impact of a natural disaster is exponentially made worse by the poverty for which we all bear some responsibility. What if that's all I said? And I don't suggest you do anything. What would you do with that word? Would you just forget about it? Would you ignore it until someone told you what to do? Would you feel compassion? Would you pray? Would you send money? Maybe sending money to Haiti after an earthquake, after a presidential assassination, after a previous earthquake from which they haven't yet recovered. Feels like buying a field in Anatoth during a Babylonian siege. Exactly. But maybe that's one way you can obey God's word to love your neighbor today. You figure it out. You can decide how you're going to respond. 
Second, another word that God gives us repeatedly is to worship. And maybe that's God's word to you today. What might that mean for you? What might you do in preparation for worship in the future when we will all gather together indoors? Maybe it means you buy a nice bottle of red wine to keep it in storage so that it will age nicely for when we'll, when we'll have communion using wine once again. Maybe buying a bottle of Bordeaux today or learning how to bake bread for future communion service feels like buying a field in Anatoth during a war. Exactly. Maybe even showing up to worship this morning feels like a waste of time. It might have been more practical, more useful to spend the day listening to someone else, to an expert TED talk on the five steps of raising successful children than to listen to another so-so sermon about Jeremiah. But we show up together because God's word for us is to worship him. When faced with a bleak and seemingly hopeless future, Jeremiah bought a field. He did it because he had confidence in God's word despite his circumstances. He saw hope beyond what his eyes saw and what his mind told him was humanly possible. It's not just wishful thinking that the Babylonian siege will be lifted. It's not some inner psychological calm or optimism. Rather, it's a vision of ultimate reality based on the unchanging and certain word of God. He purchased land in faithful and loving obedience to God's word because he knows that there is a future with God and that God calls us to faithfulness in all circumstances. As I said last week, hope doesn't mean that everything is going to be all right. Jeremiah's hope wasn't that the Babylonians would magically be defeated or disappear. He had a larger hope in the promises of God. As far as we know, he died in exile and he never got to enjoy the land that he purchased. Though I want to hope and think that maybe one of his grandchildren did. God's word does not promise everything will turn out all right. Not today. They often don't. But we have the larger promise of life beyond this life, that all will be for good and for the glory of God and for our good. And so even in chaos, we commit ourselves to ongoing obedience to God's word. I remind you that our Lord Jesus Christ in the night of his betrayal and arrest, facing a bleak end to his life, shared a meal with his friends. He could have done so many other things that evening, including running away. But he committed himself to God and to the ordinary faithfulness 
of daily obedience. And in doing so, he infused the ordinary bread and the wine with meaning so that in future days, we would do this in remembrance of him. The wine and the bread are the signs of his promises that we have eternal life in his name through the forgiveness of our sins and that he will come again, just as the field of Anatoth was a promise and sign of a return from exile. No matter how bleak or chaotic life feels, God's promises are certain. And we have these signs. He will come again, and we will have eternal life in his name. So let me encourage you to keep on taking faithful actions in obedience to God's whole word. Buy the field in Anatoth. Give to Haiti. Participate more fully in worship. And do whatever else you are called to do and anchor your faith to the eternal, hopeful, unchanging promises of God. I hope that in the years to come, in the decades to come, you can look back on this time and be able to say that you are obedient to God's word, that even though things look bleak, like Jeremiah, you can say you did something, the equivalent of, I bought the field at Anatoth. Please pray with me. Lord, your words are always true. Your words are the words of life. There is no one else to whom we can turn. So God, help us, as you have always said, to be faithful in obedience to your word. Help us to worship you, whatever that might mean for us today, and help us to love our neighbors in tangible ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 